Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. We have a great show for you today. First, we will discuss Ursula von der Leyen's State of the European Union speech and what it pretends for her vision of the European Union's future. Then we will turn to a conversation with Timothy Garnash, professor of European studies at the University of Oxford. We will discuss his new book, Homelands, A Personal History of Europe. It's a wide-ranging conversation that's really fascinating. So why don't we dive into, I think, what was the, the major uh, news of the last few weeks, which was Ursula von der Leyen's State of the Union address. So what did you make of her speech? I have mixed feelings about it. I think I maybe it's unfair to project too high a set of expectations on it at the end of the day similar to the State of the Union on on our side in Washington. There's always a lot we want to hear in it, and there's never enough. Uh, But you also want it to be a lofty speech that elevates all of our consciousness. So I'm trying to right set some expectations here. I think she did a great job linking the vision of the founding fathers to where we are today, almost two years after The beginning of the current war in Ukraine, lots of discussions around enlargement, not just for Ukraine, but also candidate countries that have been on the doorstep doorstep of the European Union for a while, especially in the Balkans. So there's some of the lofty elements that I tend to be a consumer of, I will admit. And at the same time, balancing it with all the different policy ideas that she wanted to, one, go over for things that they have done since the beginning of her mandate and two things that they still want to do, and as she says, you know, finish the job for what the European citizens have entrusted them with. And that's that's a tall order. It's just there's so much to go through. She went through the digital transition, the green transition, there's migration, there's security. She could have spoken for four hours yeah. and we would still have said, well, she didn't say this, she didn't say that. So that's where my mixed feelings come from. It's I, I, I don't know that I was elevated. I have to say, I think one of the worst things in Washington is watching like the state of the union speech in, in Yet the we US. All do it. Yeah, we all do it. And then what will inevitably happen is someone will, you know, especially in our foreign policy community, they'll be like, I can't believe they didn't talk about whatever subject is that person's subject. I'm going to disagree with you slightly about the speech. I found this to be actually, yes, it was a laundry list. But she, I think, outlined when she became uh, commission president, you know, here are two big things that I'm going to do, which is sort of the green digital transition and a geopolitical commission, that this is going to be an EU that's going to become more geopolitical. And then I think she spent much of her speech outlining, look at all the stuff we've done on climate. There's a Green New Deal. There's all these uh, actions and activities. While also, you know, I think with an eye toward the political future, given that now climate politics has become a little bit more complicated uh, in the EU, which I think may be a topic for for another podcast. But she also then went into the kind of geopolitical commission. And this is where I think it was, I think, somewhat of a lofty speech. She described that the enlargement of the EU as, quote unquote, a call of history, then sort of goes even further To really say we need to set out a vision for successful enlargement, a union complete with over 500 million people living in a free, democratic and prosperous union. Now, a lot of this is just sort of standard rhetoric. 
But she's talking about enlargement in sort of really grandiose terms. And it just sort of occurred to me, if this were like another European leader of like centuries past, you'd be like, my God, this person must be stopped. Or or a, another leader in another continent, you'd be like, my God, the aspirations for territorial expansion are running so deep. But I think what she has successfully done is shifted the conversation now in Brussels from being like, enlargement, no way it's going to happen, to sort of enlargement curious to, okay, we got to get serious about enlargement, which means we get serious about EU reform. And I feel like the mood has definitely shifted in part, you know, rhetoric like this really shifts where I think Brussels and Europe overall are kind of treating both internal reform and the enlargement possibilities of Ukraine. You make very good points. I, maybe I'm just being a Debbie Downer uh, on this on this gray Monday that really looks like Brussels weather. To be fair, I think a lot of the commentary was reflecting, I think, what you pointed out. <laughs> uh, it wasn't much here. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, it's more that I don't I, I would like it to be loftier and I wouldn't mind if the speech itself really focused on these grandiose ideas. But I understand she also has to lay a record. And I, I will say she has done a good job, her and obviously her team and whoever wrote this speech, of sprinkling clear hints of how to make this enlargement a real possibility. It's not just calling for a Europe of 500 plus million citizens. It's not just saying, how do we go? We can go from 27 to over 30. But she talks, for example, about strategic dialogue on the future of agriculture. That's a pretty clear sign with all the things that are happening between Poland and Bulgaria and Ukraine. This is tangible. It feels like, you know, call to another dialogue, but this is a tangible thing. She's asking Mario Draghi to prepare a report on future of competitiveness. So they're Clear things. She's setting the steps toward practically what is uh, integration going to look like for this enlargement. This, I have to say, I, I thought was a really smart, smart move on her part. One of the most newsworthy, I think, moments of the speech was she announced that the European Commission would launch an investigation into Chinese state subsidies for its electric vehicle exports which, you know, I think there's a lot of panic amongst European car manufacturers that their lunch is about to be eaten by cheaper and what looked like, you know, fairly well-made. I mean, China basically makes most of the things that are on this table right now that I'm looking at. So their cars, uh, their new EVs look to be fairly well-made, but obviously been likely supported by heavy state subsidies. So that drew a lot of attention. It also, I think, points to the EU getting a little bit harder harder edged about how it approaches the world, how it approaches how it's going to treat its single market. And I think that that sort of points to the kind of geopolitical commission being something that she's delivered and a trend that I think we're going to see going forward. And she makes that clear in particular when it comes to trade policy, industrial policy. She says something along the lines of we've been enforcing these rules inside, but now it also has to come. We also have to be mindful of how to enforce this with things that are coming from the outside. So she has an eye towards that. She also talks about the need for common European funding. I think that's not that subtle. And we all know that we've on this podcast, we've talked about this so much, not just for defense, but for a lot of the initiatives that are laid out here and that we've heard from other European leaders, there is going to need to be a need for this. And in Timothy Gardner's book, there's just a really good overview of why this didn't happen earlier in the life of the European Union and how now we're kind of paying the price or having to catch up 
a lot on this um, on ambitions for common funding. Of course, one of the big things that a lot of the kind of uh, Brussels watchers were looking at are indications of will she or won't she run again? I think it's pretty clear that she would like to have another term as commission president just by sort of soft pedaling some of the the more controversial climate issues. And also, I think the speech really read to me as one where someone's defending what they've done and also outlining, a, I think, somewhat of a vision for the future of where, you know, a bolder EU, stronger EU. So I think she's running. I mean, she said she's going to sort of make a decision toward the end of the year. What, what do you think uh, based off of the speech? I think so, too. As you she just lays the groundwork for what is left to be done. And once again, at least in the written version that circulated, this sentence of we have to finish the job to me is so similar to Joe Biden's message of let us finish the job. I, I can't imagine she would want to leave at this point. There's so much still to be done. And it, I think her being German has been a benefit for her own position. Um, she's also the fact that the speech mentions, you know, Bulgaria and Romania are now technically, well, not technically, but are part of our Schengen area. That's a pretty big announcement, at least for European watchers. It feels like garnering political capital yeah. from some of those places. Yeah. And of course, when I say she's running, well, I guess you run as your for European Commission president. But, you know, she would this, run as Spitzenkandidat. Yeah. So that that I think becomes the question with the EPP and Manfred Weber. Would he sort of step aside? That didn't happen last time. And then she was sort of plucked out and popped in the position. Uh, so there's still a lot of real sort of internal, you know, c cigar smoked rooms of, of <laughs> debates and conversations. One other topic that I think is probably worth uh, touching on is the fight between Poland and Ukraine that sort of emerged uh, pretty prominently in the last week, where the Polish prime minister came out and said, essentially, that we're, we're no longer providing arms to Ukraine, we're arming ourselves. And this comment came in the context of uh, what has become a a really unfortunate fight over Ukrainian grain coming into the e European market. Ukraine has been allowed to sell its grain on the European market, which makes sense since it's been sort of blockaded at sea. Uh, that has depressed prices for not just Polish farmers, but Slovak and Romanian and other farmers. And so there's you know been concern about that and actions that have been taken by certain governments that are sort of against the EU law, against the EU single market. Ukraine is retaliating by taking Poland and others to the WTO. Uh, and so you hear this comment. And initially, I sort of thought, well, is this sort of a mistranslation? You know, part of the context is, well, Poland is no longer has sort of run out essentially of Soviet era equipment to give to Ukraine because it sort of opened up its stocks and sort of it was it was giving Ukraine everything in its stocks. And now it needs to rearm itself and rebuild its own military capacity. So, oh, maybe it's just sort of a mistranslation, except after the controversy, it sort of erupted. They tweeted it out. And usually when you tweet something out, you kind of want that attention to be known. And this gets to the Polish elections of PIS trying to sort of really appeal to, to rural voters. But it also strikes me the concern with having a nationalist party that nationalists are going to nationalist. And that there isn't really a, a Polish vision, or at least from this Polish government, a real vision for the future of Europe. And I think that that's somewhat problematic. And it strikes me as hard to see how Ukraine joins with a, a government like this uh, in power, just given all the issues that are going to inevitably emerge and difficulties that they would have to you know, compromise on when it comes to the EU reform and other things like that. 
I think it's hard to have a vision as a government vision of Europe when you've spent the last few years at loggerheads with Europe on several different files, not least of which is your record on rule of law and money that you think you are owed from the next generation EU, but that Brussels is holding on because you have been found to be in breach of some of the European values. So it makes it hard to have a vision, especially if you're campaigning and a lot of your base is rural farmers. And von der Leyen herself spends, for a speech of this kind, a surprising amount of time on agriculture and farmers in particular. So she understands the politics at play here. And I think that's That's just a more general comment on all the constellation of challenges that the commission has to deal with at this moment when she's giving this speech of it's Poland, it's Bulgaria, it's Romania who are, have like a lot of concerns with Ukrainian grain. But it's also concerns around potential member states in the Balkans. It's continuing fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh. It's just so many different things that she has to reckon with. She's not alone, to be perfectly clear. And then on top of that, not only elections in Slovakia and Poland in the next three weeks, but also huge elections in the European Parliament next year. So how do you navigate all these different political dynamics for the head of the commission is, I think, really, really hard. Maybe one last bit of news uh, that happened last week. Germany and France came out with a sort of common proposal plan for sort of the, the future of Europe. In some ways, it's to sort of set the stage for the conversation about EU reform and about EU treaty reform, meaning that, you know, the EU is getting really serious about how it reforms itself in order to enlarge. And this is, I think, suddenly there's been a shift among Spain's priorities for how it's going to set up its presidency of the European Union, which is currently underway. And there's going to be a lot more focus on EU reform. But what I found interesting about the French-German proposals As I sort of saw it, it's a bit of shot across the, the bow of, you know, especially Eastern Europeans. In a way, it, by, and what I mean by that is it sort of outlines the potential for a multi-speed Europe where you potentially have a core that, you know, i.e. France and Germany and whoever wants to join the two largest economies in Europe that are going to work on deepening. And if you're not on board, well, you can be on the sort of outer ring. And I think it's a very good negotiating tactic because as we kind of enter these uh, negotiations, they can always say, well, you know what? Okay, maybe we do common foreign policy for those of us who are on board. And maybe some would be fine with that. But then if you don't want to join common foreign policy, well, then you can't join this these other things that you may want. And I could see a lot of countries that are maybe on the fence about some of these reforms then suddenly say, well... We don't want to be on, on, on an outer ring. And, yeah, and particularly some you know, smaller Eastern European countries that may really not want to give up their kind of national sovereignty over, over a foreign policy statement at the EU level. Suddenly we're like, well, is that worth like potentially losing out on some market access or some other thing, defense investments or other things that actually could be really valuable? It strikes me as a very astute opening play in what I think could become kind of a long drawn out, drawn out multifaceted conversation. And it, and it probably will be, which is a great transition to a wide ranging conversation we had with Timothy Gartnash on the past, the present and the future of Europe and the European Union. We are thrilled to welcome Timothy Garten-Ash, Professor of European Studies at the University of Oxford, Isaiah Berlin Professorial Fellow at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and a Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, to the show. 
Most of his work has focused on the contemporary history of Europe, with a special focus on Central and Eastern Europe. He's also the author of numerous books, and most recently, and part of the reason and things we're going to talk about today, Homelands, A Personal History of Europe, which is in bookstores now. Timothy, welcome to the Europhile. Great to be with you. So, Timothy, maybe we could just start by uh, you giving us sort of a background on what prompted this book and, and why the title Homelands. Sure. This book took me just 50 years to write, 50 years of <laughs> traveling around Europe, writing about Europe, worrying about Europe. You know, Max, it seems to me that one of the most distinctive things about being a European is that you can feel at home abroad, right? In any any of up to 40, 50 countries, I'm in Paris, I'm in Berlin, I'm in Budapest, I'm in Tallinn, I'm clearly abroad, but I also feel at home. And hence this title, Homelands in the plural, which possibly couldn't be used for a book about the United States. I think your your point about European uh, identity, I think, is really interesting there, where there's oftentimes debate within Europe about is there a, a European identity? And I think your the answer to your question just from, from reading your book is, well, there is kind of, there is a, a, a common European identity that doesn't maybe, uh, it's not as deep as perhaps some national identities, but there is this sort of overarching European identity. Do you think that's sort of a fair characterization? Absolutely, but it's always a second identity. Mm-hmm. You're always something and European, or several things and European. I mean, you could be, you know, Londoner, English, British, and European, as well as the football club you support and what your politics are and so on, because um, I'm a great believer in multiple identities, but it's a strong second identity. It means a lot to a lot of Europeans. And by the way, you saw that in the massive reaction to the Brexit vote. I mean, the huge demos in London uh, for people who are saying, I don't want to be robbed of, of my European uh, identity. But it, it, for the foreseeable future, Max, it always will be a second identity. We're not going to get to the United States of Europe. It's not a substitute for the nation. And I think when we're constructing you know, a larger and deeper European Union, that's something you really have to keep in mind. It's always finding the balance between unity and diversity. Maybe we could go back to your to your book and sort of how you because it's it's a wide sweeping sort of narrative history, first person accounts starting in the aftermath uh, of World War Two. How do you sort of break down the kind of last seventy five years of, of European history? Do you break the, it down into into different eras or epochs, or how do you? Uh, how do you sort of wrestle with something that large of kind of the last 75 years of European history? First of all, it's a very unusual genre of this book because it's history illustrated by memoir and reportage. So the stories, and there are great stories in there, but they're all to illustrate the history. 50 years of my own experience, I started traveling in Europe in the early 70s, when, by the way, most of Europe was still living under dictatorships. But I get back to 1945 through the experience of my father, who landed with the first wave on D-Day. And I would say, and this is actually something I really worked out, you know, only working on this book, that there are kind of three periods. There's um, what Tony Jutt famously called post-war, i.e. post-45, which really ends with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War. There's what I call the post-wall period, the period since the fall of the Berlin Wall, which obviously starts on the 9th of November 1989, and I argue comes in, you know, like a game of European football, two halves, right? So sort of the upward half, 
where we seem to be winning, we liberal Europeans, till about 2007, and then the downward turn since, since 2008. But I also argue, and this is really key to thinking about your question, that that period almost certainly ended on the 24th of February 2022 with Vladimir Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And that takes us into a new period, a period whose character we don't know and certainly much too fresh to have a name. One sort of just uh, you know personal reflection from from reading the book and particularly the parts about uh, East Berlin and Friedrichstrasse. Some of my first memories of life were actually in East Berlin in the 1980s. My parents were both European historians, and so we spent a summer there. And your depiction of of the border crossing is sort of seared in my memory. But it, it's kind of this moment of where Europe was divided. It seemed sort of a permanent division, and I think. You know, your reflection that the fall of the wall, which I think historians or many, I think we now sort of see as sort of inevitable, actually wasn't quite as inevitable, perhaps, as it turned out. And, you know, I think you have been one of the great pens of the of the era of Central Europeans sort of rising up and, and sort of taking taking control of their own history. But I'm wondering if you could sort of reflect a little bit on, on divided Europe and how Europe did this amazing shift from where it was in 19. 19- 88 to where it was suddenly at the end of 1989. I mean, first of all, that was the big fact of the post-war period, apart from the fact, obviously, that we were after this terrible war and in a Europe which had sworn never again. It was this division running right down the middle of the continent, the Iron Curtain, and that shaped everything. And, you know, the interesting thing is that while Europe was no longer calling the shots in global politics... It was still the central theatre of global politics and the centre of the divided continent was a divided Germany and the centre of a divided Germany was a divided Berlin and the centre of a divided Berlin was a wall so that you were absolutely at the epicentre of world politics there. And it was a story that shaped all our lives. And it's important to say that most people living behind the Iron Curtain thought that the division of Europe was a fact of life, like like something in physical geography, like the Alps. So when the wall came down, it was this miracle. It was like the Alps crumbling in front of your eyes, OK? And you're so right to say, now we've all yielded to what Henri Bergson, the French philosopher, called the illusions of retrospective determinism, the almost irresistible temptation to think that what actually happened somehow had to happen. And that's actually one of, in the broadest sense, liberal Europeans and Americans' biggest mistakes, that we took this one-in-a-million example of historical luck. I mean, all the things that had to come together, big and small, to make that miraculous fall of the wall and end of the Cold War happen, and we turned it into normality. We said, that's the way history is going. And that, I think, explains much of the the hubris that led us into the the downward turn and the problems we have today. You expose that so well in the book. I feel like, first of all, the, I was struck by the, the journaling discipline that you've exhibited for the last however many decades, the richness of the stories. As you mentioned at the beginning, I, I don't think I've ever, I personally don't read a ton of nonfiction, but I don't think I've read this kind of genre before. And I that's what makes it so breathless and going through all the stories, the conversations that you've had with honestly incredible people. I think that 
through these stories, you expose this fact, which is the hubris. And we're making so many assumptions to this day. And you expose that really well when you talk about the different transitions of post-communist countries in Europe, because we're having a lot of conversations about several of them. These days, a few of them are about to go through uh, very important elections. But thinking about the transition to democracy and into Europe, all of these things we thought were possible in parallel at the same time, and then into NATO, all of it together. And we, we kind of put down our guard. And so reading this, I kept wondering, are we doomed to fail because we tried to go too fast? And there's one area in particular where you talk about this intra-European orientalism and civilizational condescension. I feel like I, I was born and raised in Belgium, and I don't feel like we've given up that bad habit. I feel like we're still looking at Central and Eastern Europe with a similar lens but not understanding what it takes to get through these transitions. How, how do you look at the region today? Do, do you feel a similar sense of hopelessness or am I just the only doom and gloom person? I don't actually. Just to pick up on intra-European Orientalism, that is to say the tendency that goes all the way back to the Enlightenment for West Europeans to treat Eastern Europe as if it's not really fully Europe. You know, it's somehow archaic and vaguely barbaric. And that constantly recurs. And it is completely mistaken because, listen, Marine Le Pen would be quite at home in Jaroslav Kaczynski's Poland. And Nigel Farage would be quite at home in Viktor Orban's Hungary. And Vox from Spain would be quite at home in Romania. Right? We have an all-European phenomenon of nationalist populism. And then, so to speak, with post-communist characteristics different from country to country. So that's point number one. Point number two, absolutely, the mistake we made was was hubris. And and I, I count at least eight different varieties of hubris. I won't tell you them all. I mean, the US going into Iraq was clearly an important one, right? Tony Blair's Cool Britannia was another. The Eurozone was a third, right? It's all going to go so smoothly. My particular variant, Kulpa Mea, and that of my friends, was the belief that the constitutional theory of the U European Union actually is a reality. Namely, once a new democracy gets into the EU, that consolidates and secures its democracy. Almost as soon as we'd got there, Viktor Orban in Hungary, starting already 2010, started demolishing that democracy and proving us wrong. And now, as you mentioned, we have elections in Slovakia, 30th of September, and then Poland, crucially, vitally, uh, 15th of October, I'll be there, of course. So I think it's a quite a critical moment. But I'm not at all despairing. Because a lot of this was about a reaction to such an almost revolutionary change of globalization, liberalization, westernization, Europeanization, almost literally a reactionary movement, right? And it's entirely possible for us to get through it. And by the way, you know, in an extraordinary fashion, the war in Ukraine has reminded everyone of the value of freedom and democracy and has unblocked the process of eastward enlargement of both EU and NATO. Hopefully it has. I think rhetorically for some parts of Europe, it has. I'm, I'm curious if the people of Europe share that sense. You know what? Here's the thing. Actually, and I was in Brussels recently, in Brussels, amazingly, 
unlike in the early 2000s, when it was all very reluctant, it has. The fact that you have such an intense discussion about how would we make an EU of 36 member states work shows that people are taking seriously. But where you're right in your scepticism, it's being pushed by East Europeans, naturally enough. There's a huge amount of reluctance amongst many West Europeans right? Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, the South is much more important. What about our agricultural subsidies? The missing actor in all of this is Europe's central power, Germany, which plays such an important part in the book, right? If Germany threw its weight, its considerable weight, behind that eastward enlargement, then I would be confident it was going to happen in the next decade. Unless and until it does, there has to be a shadow of doubt, And I want to set this record straight. I'm a huge proponent of this effort. The skepticism is more of a concern that I want to see them succeed. I really want to see them succeed. But you mentioned Germany. In the book, you talk about coal. And especially as we just listened to Ursula von der Leyen give her State of the European Union, you write, if only we had any leaders now who could lay out such a clear vision of where they wanted Europe to be in 10 years' time. I find this to resonate deeply for Germany in particular. I don't see Chancellor Schultz laying this kind of vision. State of the Union, I was it's not exactly Gettysburg Address, let's be honest. Not that it has to be, but the commentariat is also saying, well, all these things were missing from it, but it could just be her laying out a vision of Europe. But it didn't, I don't feel like at this particular moment, she's seizing the opportunity to ha- have this expansive vision. You know what? She's done a pretty good job of Ukraine in leading the EU over Ukraine. Well, I want to acknowledge that. There's one guy who has strategic vision. The, the problem may be he has one or two or too many of them, and that's Emmanuel Macron. But at least he's thinking strategically about the European Union and the French shift. Traditionally, ever since 1989, France has been reluctant about enlargement, eastward enlargement, because clearly the center of the EU has to be somewhere near Paris, right? Now, Macron has understood that it has happened and is going to happen. And he's had made this great turn to being a proponent of membership for Ukraine, both EU and NATO. So that's makes sense. So the missing piece is indeed Germany. So listen, Germany has had, in the history of the Federal Republic, which will be 75 next year, so, you know, older than many member states, three great national strategies which had international consequences. The Western integration under Konrad Adenauer, the Ostpolitik, the Eastern policy initiated by Willy Brandt, and what I write about a lot in the book, Helmut Kohl linking German and European unification. So, you know, when I tell the story in the book that he suddenly says to me in 1992, do you realize you're sitting opposite the direct successor to Adolf Hitler? It, it, it wasn't just a conversation stopper. It was also he was saying, I understand my historical responsibility. Hitler tried to put a German roof over Europe. I'm going to put a European roof over Germany. Okay, so they're the big three. And what we need is a fourth national strategy with major international implications. I'm going to call it a Gesamt-Europa-Politik, an all-European policy, something that is about both the enlargement and the deepening of the European Union. And that's what we're not yet getting from Olaf Scholz, but we live in hope. It strikes me that we're, at least in Brussels, a lot of the challenge is that 
the kind of optimism that existed in the early 2000s that was, I think, if, you know, the end of Tony Jute's book sort of pointed to kind of Europe will be sort of a model for, for others. And, and I think Mark Leonard of, of ECFR wrote about sort of it'll be the European 21st century. And then, as you know, in the book, Europe then has, you know, in 2008, it's the sort of change of an era, decade of crisis. And it strikes me that Europe right now is in this post-February 2022 moment, stuck between its optimism and pessimism about its future, and especially when it comes to enlargement. Is it going to try to do sort of very technical reform to the EU, or is there sort of a more visionary approach about where Europe is headed in this century? And it's the lack of Germany in this conversation, I think, is somewhat problematic. But, it, it, you know, there's the, the Franco-German proposal that was recently put out was sort of in some ways very technical. But it doesn't seem that there's this big sort of vision push for kind of a new Europe. And I would sort of disagree with Donatienne a, a bit. Is It does strike me that that's what Ursula von der Leyen is trying to do, outlining a, a EU of 500 million people, a geopolitical Europe. But I'm curious how you see the kind of optimism or pessimism about Europe's future, how that's playing out right now. So first of all, only the European Union could discuss the question of how you construct a European order for the 21st century as an issue of, quote unquote, absorption capacity. <laughs> I don't think Bismarck or Clausewitz or indeed Willy Brandt talked about the future of Europe as absorption capacity. That said, you know, my formula has always been the famous uh, formula popularized by Antonio Gramsci, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. And I argue in the book that pessimism of the intellect is a constructive quality. So you see, Max, I think all that great optimism, which even touched just slightly that most sceptical of historians, Tony Jart, and Mark Linder's book and many others from that time, I can show you a whole shelf of them, that was an ill-finded optimism of the intellect, right, without solid foundations. Now, in the 1970s, which is in a way where this whole story of the upward turn begins, we actually had pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. You know, remember, things look pretty bad for the West, at the beginning of the 1970s, there were still dictatorships. The Soviet Union seemed to be doing very well. The US seemed to be doing very badly. We were ending the Trente Glorieuses with the oil price shock. Uh, Britain was going down the tubes. I mean, I can go on and on. And because we had the pessimism of the intellect to recognize how deep our problems were, but also the optimism of the will to say we can overcome them, we actually came out of it um, with all cylinders firing in the 1980s. And so a slightly you know, more hopeful way of looking at where we are now is at least we realize how deep our problems are and at least we're trying to face up to them. And that is, you know, that's, there are many worse formulae than, than that of pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. One of the, the things that comes across to me in, in your book and also, you know, working here in Washington on Europe, I think there tends to be this view that Europe is, is not very dynamic, that Europe is sort of stuck, it's an aging continent, it's very bureaucratic, nothing gets done, and it's sort of us Americans that have to come in and sort of organize European security and sort of drive Europe's future. But of course, you know, in, in my lifetime, I experienced East Berlin, the fall of the wall, 
integration of Europe. And I think what comes across in your book is how dynamic Europe is, actually, and how much it evolves and changes and how much it has evolved and changed. I think much more so than, than the United States, uh, for instance, in the, over the last 50 to 75 years. But I'm curious, do you think that Europe is a dynamic continent that is changing or is it maybe it's changed a bit too much and now we're getting a bit of a, a backlash? So first of all, just on sort of superficially old-fashioned, you know, I go to the U.S. every year because of my appointment at Stanford. So I have kind of a quarter century of the U.S. in time-lapse photography. And I have to tell you, American airports, American railway stations, you know, sort of these physical features of life do look remarkably old-fashioned to a, to a European. So it does in a very superficial way, you know. Um, yeah. Our cityscapes are just more, more, more modern. Uh, to, to the dynamism point, I mean, look, what an amazing story of change over the last 30 years. Just go to Estonia if you want dynamism, if you want change, revolutionary change. But against that, you have this reaction in our societies from, you know, a good chunk of our societies who are saying precisely, this is too much change. Too much new, particularly focusing on the issue of immigration, where, of course, the demographic change is immense. And so you definitely have this reaction. I mean, I mentioned Poland, you know, back to the old trilogy or triptych of, um, you know, fatherland, family and church, right? So these two forces, I would say, those of, 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 of progress, if you will, or change and reaction, are very much in contention. Well, speaking of Poland, there's a really important election in under a month, let's say three weeks. Um, you talk about in the book, even back in 2003, there were worries in the country that since we were just talking about values, there is no place for God in the European Union. These conversations have kept going and under law and justice, it hasn't stopped. How do you see things playing out. I'm not asking you to pull out your crystal ball, but if you have one, please let us let us in on it. Just how do you see this election in the continuity of Poland's transition, recognizing there's a bit of a contradiction in what I just said? Law and justice just has seized more and more power, but is facing more and more pressure from the outside, including conversations around European Union integration, is trying to support Ukraine and at the same time is facing a lot of resistance internally. So I'd, I'd love to hear your take. You've spent so much time there with really pivotal figures. Um, what are your, what is your optimism and your pessimism when it comes to Poland? Yeah, well, obviously, Poland is, is very close to my heart. And by the way, since you mentioned notebooks, because I have these notebooks going all the way back 50 years, some of the things I'd forgotten, and what you just mentioned, the fact that when we were marching down the streets of Warsaw in 2003 to get support for a referendum vote for Poland to join the EU, there was this not small counter-demonstration uh, with placards mentioning Adolf Hitler and saying it's a German plot and there's no place for God in the EU. I'd actually forgotten mm -hmm. that. Yeah, and you write it in the book. And I should also mention, Anne Applebaum wrote this incredible, I thought, incredible article in 2018 in The Atlantic about the evolution of anti-communist demonstrators who are now the actors of the dismantling of uh, the rule of law in, in Poland. A couple of things on that. I mean, there were right-wing dissidents as well as left-wing dissidents. 
and they both played their part. I mean, um, actually, the church was very important. Nationalism was very important. It wasn't all just, you know, milk and honey, liberal internationalism. So that's not the problem. And and indeed, I may not like some of the very conservative policies, policies of law and justice, but I don't like some of the policies of, you know, many conservative parties. That's That's not the issue. The issue is that you have these fragile democracies which are being eroded. There's a process of what might be called state capture by these populist parties. Now, that has gone so far in Hungary that Hungary is no longer a democracy. Shocking fact. Most political scientists would say it's a competitive authoritarian or electoral authoritarian system. In Poland, I'm extremely worried that law and justice may win a third election and a third term would enable them to consolidate the state capture. But you know what? Poland being Poland, this is not going to be a consolidated authoritarianism. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be chaos. It's going to be uh, large crowds on the streets. And so I, I, I worry very much about that victory, um, but because I think that, as has happened many times before in Polish history, it can make a sort of non-functioning state. I mean, the old saying was, nie żądem Polska stoi, Poland stands on disorder or Poland stands on anarchy. And that's more the danger, I think, than that an urbanite real consolidation. But of course, also their Euroscepticism, their hostility to the EU, which they describe as a German plot, which is, of course, complete nonsense, is going to be a real problem if we're trying to build a bigger and stronger EU, because after Brexit, with Britain gone, you need a bunch of countries that are going to be a kind of coalition of the willing at the heart of the EU to take the lead. And the moment you've got Germany and France, and surprisingly, a teeny bit of Maloney and a bit of Spain. But if you had Poland as the biggest power in Central Europe, that would give you a critical mass. You know, one of our, our non-residents, Professor Dan Kellerman, writes a lot about how the EU hasn't taken a hard enough line when it's come to democratic rollback. We've now started to see the EU trying to hold back funding uh, or holding back funding from from Poland and, and Hungary. But this strikes me as being all tied up with Ukraine enlargement, that part of the concern about further enlargement of, you know, I think the French concern of enlarging to the Western Balkans is that you, you know, there's... The EU doesn't have these the the queer enforcement mechanisms to really stop democratic rollback, and so what's to prevent a North Macedonia or Albania from having an election that goes essentially "quote unquote" the wrong way and leading to a rollback of democracy and and also throwing a, a wrench in the gears of how the European Union functions? And it strikes me that you have Poland that is both the you know, has been until perhaps very recently a huge advocate of Ukraine and Ukraine's membership in the EU, but also perhaps one of the main obstacles to a new EU treaty or further reform that might strengthen some of the democratic uh, tools that the EU has at its disposal. How do you see this sort of play on? What's the role for Brussels here? Or is this mainly an internal Polish uh, issue? No, not at all. It's core to the whole EU. So by the way, I'm a great admirer of Dan Kellerman's work, particularly on Hungary. Here's the thing. The moment of maximum EU leverage is the moment just before a country joins. What Viktor Orban found out is that once you got in, you can get away with almost anything. You can roll back all those things that you did before. And one of the 
design the construction flaws of the European Union is that for all it says in its treaties about democracy and human rights and the rule of law, fundamentally it's still a European economic community, right? And what we fail to do is to make an effective linkage between the Europe of money, that means a lot of money, billions in EU funds, and the Europe of values. Now, we were just beginning, very late, but just beginning to get serious about that in 2020, 2019, 2020, 2021. There was just beginning to be real pressure on Hungary and Poland. And then the full-scale war breaks out in Ukraine. And because we have unanimity for foreign policy decisions, we then suddenly needed the Polish and Hungarian leaders, and indeed the Bulgarian and Romanian and other leaders, for every single decision on sanctions against Russia. And Orban, of course, played that brilliantly and said, OK, I'll agree with you if you go soft and give me, you want to give 18 billion euros to Ukraine? Give me 6 billion, which is actually what happened, right? So that, so that tragically, the reaction to the war and, and getting a strong reaction to the war in Ukraine has actually weakened this linkage that was just beginning to bite. And it is an absolutely key question because what it's like, you know, it's like trying to redesign your car while you're driving down the highway. It's pretty difficult to do. I want to also ask you about the UK uh, and Brexit. And I think, you know, you are, I think, a, a proud British citizen, yet you call yourself a, a, a European. How do you see Brexit having impacted both Europe, but also the, the UK? Uh, I studied at the London School of Economics earlier in this century. It was essentially a European capital where a lot of the graduates were going off to work for the European Union. And it doesn't quite feel the same as it, as it perhaps did 20 or so years ago. Uh, but I'm curious how you see Brexit and what you think Brexit sort of means for the UK and, and for the future of Europe. Um. You really want to get me depressed, don't you? <laughs> we have to, I think. You sure, you sure don't want to talk about something cheerful like American politics? <laughs> we, we avoid that at all costs on this podcast. <laughs> For me, as a lifelong passionate English European, Brexit is, of course, a tragedy. And a short answer to your question is that virtually all the negative economic consequences that we foretold in arguing that Britain should remain in the EU, are now becoming painfully visible. You can go down the list. What is as bad, a dramatic loss in international standing, reputation, influence, attractiveness. I actually talked to a senior American official the other day and I said, you know, how much less does Britain matter to the US because of Brexit? And he says, a lot less. That That is almost as... As, as consequential, I think, as the, as, the, as the economic cost, so that all the negative consequences are becoming apparent. And atmospherically, I mean, look, London is still a fantastic city, no question, and a European city. I mean, you know, Britain can no more leave Europe than Piccadilly Circus can leave London, right? It, it, it remains, it always has been, that's where we are. But certainly atmospherically, there's been a cost too. I mean, if I tell you that I have colleagues who contemplate going back to Italian public universities, you'll understand, you know, the, the, the feeling. The one thing I would say, well, two things I would say. One is British democracy came under huge stress during the, the process of Brexit. But actually, I think we can say with some confidence that it survived. As I say in the book, 
Boris Johnson tried to suspend Parliament in order to push through Brexit. The Supreme Court told him he couldn't do that. Government immediately complied. Everyone accepted the verdict. It's above parties. Uh, the, 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 the law courts, the media, um, you know, civil society institutions, all the stuff which is coming under stress in the United States. And, of course, the Parliament is, is working very well and we're going to have an election next year and in traditional British fashion, we will kick the bastards out, uh, if you pardon my French, and, you know, bring in another party. So that's one bit of good news. The other bit of good news is that we've passed peak Brexit. I mean, it's absolutely clear. Already, even Rishi Sunak is making baby steps to get closer to the European Union, right? Like rejoining the Horizon Scientific Research Programme. When, as seems likely, Starmer and a Labour government comes in, they will be somewhat larger steps. And so the story of the next five years, at least, is probably going to be one of small, incremental, painful, difficult steps towards a closer relationship with our European neighbours and partners, but not yet complementing rejoining. I think the rejoin question only comes on the agenda, if at all, towards the end of the next parliament, which is the end of the 2020s. Yes, I think we'll we'll need to, to wait a little bit longer for that. And Starmer himself doesn't probably doesn't want to take that up so quickly. Well, well the, the point is the politics of it is such that even the Lib Dems, I mean, actually, on BBC Radio this very morning, the Lib Dem, you know, the great pro-European party, was asked, what about rejoining? And he completely ducked the question because all the parties have the problem that a significant number of their voters were passionately remain, but a significant number were strongly for leave. We had uh, David Lammy here at CSIS uh, last week, the, the shadow foreign secretary, and sort of described it as a Brexit, sort of a very bad divorce, and now they're kind of trying to pick up the phone again. And so a gradual process of, of sort of rebuilding the relationship, I think, both with Brussels, but also just within the UK, I think. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit weary of the divorce metaphor, but 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 if, if anyone can make up after the divorce, it's David Lammy, who is someone who has been actually pushing the agenda of a closer relationship with uh, the European Union, specifically against Keir Starmer's political advisers, who were looking at the so-called red wall seats in the north of England, which went to the Tories because they wanted Brexit, and being super, super cautious. So you had, you had one side of the argument at CSIS uh, with David Lammy, but there's also that other side. Whereas we're talking about the EU-UK relationship, hopefully edging back towards... Uh, entente. Let's hope for that for now. On the other side of the Atlantic, the conversation between the EU and the US since the what you call post-wall Europe has been an ebb and flow or of we have some common interests. We have definitely an alliance that has been around now almost 75 years, values that we share. But you also talk about the fact that there might be at some point a necessary divergence of where these two blocks go. How do you assess this at this point where you see similar pushes on both sides of the Atlantic with things like the green transition and labor concerns, but also constant discussions around different tech approaches and industrial policies? Do you see there being fertile ground for a true renewed transatlantic partnership? So listen, the geopolitical West essentially came into being to fight one common enemy, namely Adolf Hitler. 
and then continued and expanded to fight another common enemy, namely Joseph Stalin and his successors. I mean, of course, the West as culture and history has existed for centuries, but the geopolitical West only dates from, if you want, 1941 to 1991, when that second common enemy, the Soviet Union, disappears. And ever since 1991, it's been a question whether there's going to be an element of divergence because our threat perception will differ. One of the more curious experiences that I recount in the book is going to brief President George W. Bush before his first official visit to Europe in 2001. And at one point in that conversation, suddenly he said to this small group of, of, of invited guests, do we want the European Union to succeed? Lionel Barber, subsequently editor of the FT and I, said, Mr. President, you certainly should. And we made that case very emphatically. By the way, two Brits making the case for the EU to the US president. But it's so revealing that he even asked the question, right? US presidents during the Cold War wouldn't have thought to ask that question. It was an essential part of American geopolitical strategy to build up a strong Europe. So the question has been posed ever since the end of the Cold War. Two things. First of all, I think the key determinant will be our perception of China, because basically we have a shared threat perception of Russia, somewhat stronger in Europe, somewhat weaker in the US, but nonetheless. But threat perceptions of China have been quite divergent. I mean, ECFR had a poll the other day which suggested that I think it was a plurality of Europeans said they would want to remain neutral in the case of a military conflict between America, the US and China over Taiwan. So I think that could really drive a wedge between us. The other wild card is, I don't need to tell you, Donald Trump. I mean, if Trump becomes US president again, all bets are off. God knows what he can do. I mean, starting with the fact that that is a catastrophe for Ukraine. I spent a lot of my time on Ukraine. You know, the threat to Ukraine now, in terms of Western support, does not come from Europe. It comes from the US. And above all, Trump is the one person who could really pull the rug out from under them. Well, uh, Timothy Garnash, I want to go on, uh, but unfortunately, we're we're at time. And one just quick thought based off your last comment. It's not only Donald Trump, you know, right now where uh, Washington is aflutter with uh, talk of a potential shutdown at the end of end of the week. Uh, obviously, if uh, government shuts down, funding to Ukraine will come maybe not to a halt, but it will impact it. And then there's big questions about what will be the future of Ukraine assistance just with this Congress. But there's, I think, a lot more to discuss. And I want to thank you for for coming on the Eurofile, and for really writing a fantastic book, uh, Homelands. Also note to our listeners that the uh, uh, Audible version comes out uh, tomorrow, or I guess this would be Tuesday, uh, September uh, 26th uh, in the U.S. So by the time this podcast comes out, it will be be up as well. So everyone should go buy the book, and whether you're listening to it or reading it, uh, it, is, it is fantastic. So thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Finally, please check out our new executive education course titled Beyond the Battlefield, Global Implications of Russia's War in Ukraine, where we'll unpack how Russia's continued war in Ukraine has been impacting domestic and foreign policies inside Russia throughout the transatlantic community and across the globe. 
please consider registering if you are an experienced professional working on topics in the development, defense, or international security space. As always, our thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, and to Sarah Stromberg and Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.